107 News, 24 hours a day. This is Kirkcaldy's Community Radio. K107 FM. Life has ups and downs. If you're going through a difficult patch, you're not alone. Mind to Mind is a website where people who have felt stressed, anxious or low share their experiences to help others who are struggling. Hear how others are taking care of their mental well-being at nhsinform.scot forward slash mind to mind. If you're like Dave who orders his weekly supermarket shop online, or like Sandra who renews her insurance through a comparison site, or even Alan who orders his office supplies online, you can be raising free donations every time you shop. When you shop, renew or order online through easy fundraising, thousands of big brands will donate to organisations like K107FM. And it doesn't cost you a penny. Search Easy Fundraising and K107FM and make your money count. K107FM Matanda, Fiskema. A Happy New Year from the studios of The Week in Holyrood at the Scottish Parliament Building in Edinburgh. I'm Charles Fletcher. In the second of our special editions, Scotland's First Minister Hamza Yusuf says it's incomprehensible that the word ceasefire is causing senior politicians in the UK and the wider world such difficulty. Around 8,000 children have now been killed in the continuing conflict between Israel and Gaza. As people struggle for life, military action on the ground and from the air intensifies. Some politicians and diplomats are increasingly struggling to support Israel's justification for the continuing action. Exclusive to the Week in Holyrood, here's the First Minister, Hamza Youssef. I think, um, in my lifetime anyway, I've never seen this level of death or destruction. And the word ceasefire being um, really a controversial word. So mm. Phenomenal, when you think about it, never in my time have the calling of stopping and ceasing hostilities with over 7,000 children dead. Has that ever been a, a difficult call to make? But for some, it continues, including, I'm afraid, the UK government, including, of course, the leader of the opposition, and including also, of course, the United States. And I think those positions um, I can't comprehend, nor, frankly, could I justify. We'll hear more from Scotland's First Minister later in this special edition of The Week in Holyrood. The continuing action in Gaza is generating fears of a wider regional conflict. So far, that's not happened. But over this past week, a very real danger has emerged in the Red Sea and onwards towards the Suez Canal. Iran-backed Houthi forces based in Yemen have been attacking traitors with real or perceived links to Israel. Britain's Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, says the UK won't hesitate to take further action if the Houthi attacks continue. The US has already gathered a fleet and killed a Houthi group attacking a container ship. For Sky News, Nicole Johnson is in Jerusalem. In November, Houthi gunmen dropped out of a helicopter, staging an audacious attack on a cargo ship. This weekend, they were back at it. This ship attacked twice in 24 hours. The second time, four small Houthi boats surrounded it. The US sank three of them, killing at least 10 fighters. 
It's been dramatic days in the Red Sea, one of the world's most important trading routes. And some of the biggest global shipping companies are now avoiding the route altogether, instead sailing around the southern tip of Africa. But the UK and the US say this can't go on. A warning of direct action from Defence Secretary Grant Shapps. The Houthis should be under no misunderstanding. We are committed to holding malign actors accountable for unlawful seizures and attacks. Iran, which backs the Houthis, blames the UK and the US for rising regional tension. Activities by the US and Britain in the Red Sea are in line with the role of those two countries in intensifying instability and insecurity in the regional waters, especially in the Red Sea. Such moves will not help the region's stability and security at all. Their acts will raise regional and international concern about the security of the region. The fear is war in Gaza will spill over to the rest of the region. On New Year's, Hamas fired rockets towards Tel Aviv and Israel bombed Gaza. It's hell. Imagine packing up. What do you take? This is the sixth time the al family has fled. To avoid being hit, we went to Al-Magaza camp when they attacked us with missiles. It was a dark night and four people were killed. As you see here, there is nothing, nothing, no sign of life. Nights are long. No electricity, only grief. My tragedy lives inside me. The outside world does not feel it at all. Let them have their celebrations and leave me to live my tragedy. In Gaza, it's endless days and endless nights and no end to the suffering. Nicole Johnston, Sky News, Jerusalem. And as we begin 2024, we have continuing conflict in Ukraine. As the Russian invasion heads towards its third year, there is no breakthrough in sight to determine its end. Ukrainian MP Alexei Goncharenko says his people are facing a campaign of terror and they will fight back. Like several days ago on Friday, there was a big, massive missile attack on the whole country, including Odessa. And in Odessa, five people were killed by heat of residential, big residential building. The school and church were damaged. In general, in Ukraine, 39 people were killed on Friday morning. And uh, yesterday, this night, today, the, it was again, uh, uh, it was again residential area and residential buildings hit uh, by Russian attacks. I don't know whether they do it consciously or just their weapon is not precise. I really don't know, but it looks like that that's all a campaign of terror against people, mm. just to kill the moral of people, just to attack in a new year night, on a Christmas night, and all the time just to show that they don't have any mercy and everything. People are exhausted, people are tired, but... but I mean, that doesn't work, because what options do we have? Mm. 
we, we know what Russians do on occupied territories, and we know it from our history. If Russia would prevail, that would mean a genocide for Ukrainians. So we don't have any other options than to fight, and we will fight. The Scottish Parliament has pledged its continuing support for Ukraine and for its refugees who come here. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher. The Scottish and UK parliaments continue to be in recess. Members are back next week at the start of an election year for Westminster. And it's an election that will have a reach across both parliaments. The Conservatives are facing a potential wipeout in England. Professor John Curtis of Strathclyde University says the Reform Party is breathing down their neck. If the opinion polls are correct... Reform are now already proving to be something of a problem for the Conservatives. If you actually look at the polls that were done in December and examine how people who voted for the Conservatives in 2019, what they now say they will do for every one voter who now says they will vote for Labour, there is another one voter who now says that they will vote for reform. In other words, the Conservatives are losing votes as heavily to reform as they are to Labour is one of the problems that now faces Rishi Sunak as he tries to work out how to recover from the slough of electoral despond in which his party has now been stuck for the last 15 months. And I don't want to tempt you to wander down the avenues of speculation because I know you're a, a scientist and sophologist, but are you able to ponder what Nigel Farage might mean for reform should he choose to jump there, should he become either a candidate or a leader? Well, I mean, certainly there's one opinion poll not so long ago that suggested that reform might go up to about 14% in the polls. They're currently running on average at nine. Now, that still wouldn't mean that reform could, could well, still end up, as UKIP did in 2015, without any MPs but that would add significantly to the Conservatives' problems because uh, undoubtedly because uh, reform are attracting the voters uh, and leave voters are the foundation of the Conservative success in 2019. Uh, Nigel Farage is a charismatic figure. Reform is not that well known, although it's beginning to get that better known. But with Nigel Farage at its head, it would be much more of a challenge to the Conservatives than the not inconsiderable challenge that reform are already posing. Here, the Scottish Conservatives have hopes of not only holding their seats, but also making gains. A veteran Conservative in Scotland tells me he believes there is a real chance for his party to push the SNP into third place on Westminster seats in Scotland. Amid the surge in support for Labour both north and south of the border, the latest polling shows Labour ahead of the SNP with the Tories in third place. All of which adds to the headache for SNP leader Hamza Yousaf as he rallies his troops for the general election, potentially in May. Liz Lloyd is a former adviser to the former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Liz Lloyd says the SNP needs to pull its socks up. She spoke with my colleague Johnny Diamond on the world at one. When you think about the SNP having what is often described as a a dominant position in Scotland, in Westminster, that's actually only the last three elections. It's just they all came very quickly between 2015 and 2019. The reality of a normal, if you like, 
Scottish Westminster election result is that if Labour look like they can form a credible government at Westminster, voters tend to vote for them because they choose not to have a Conservative government and look for the best way to express that view. Um, so that has seen in the past, you know, Labour with incredibly dominant positions of yeah. 50 plus seats and the SNP on five or six. What the question is this time is, you know, how much are Labour able to pull the SNP back? How much do the SNP's difficulties contribute to that? And can they get to 20 plus seats you, at the election? Do you do you sense now that in, in Scotland, Labour has that credibility and, and can therefore attract the votes that it used to get or some of them? I think... What's working for Labour at the moment is that there is a, a perception, a narrative that Keir Starmer will be able to form a government. And so it's less about what policies Labour are putting forward or the credibility of the Labour Party in Scotland. It is more about how do we make sure that we don't have a Conservative government anymore. Now, the reality is that you could vote SNP or Labour. At the end of the day, SNP MPs will put the Labour Party into government. Um, but people tend to look and see, is there an opportunity for a change? That opportunity wasn't there in 15 and 17 and 19. They may think it is this time. Labour's credibility is, is one half of the story. The other half is what some people see as a rather tired independence campaign and a rather tired government in the SNP. Is, is energy and positioning a problem at the moment for the party? The party has its challenges, certainly. I mean, Hamza Youssef has had the chance, he's had nine months to, if you like, clear the decks of policies that were left over from the Nicola Sturgeon time, um, issues that were causing him difficulty. And I think he now has, you know, ahead of the election, the opportunity to say, right, this is my agenda, this is what I'm about, and deliver on it so that people can make a judgment on him, make a judgment on his SNP, and, you know, he would hope put their votes behind him. Um, but it's certainly been a difficult time, and that has undoubtedly contributed to people not necessarily switching to Labour, although some have, but holding back their judgment on the SNP um, to give the party the chance to sort of see if it can get its act together. I think it still has some way to go to convince people that it, it is strong enough again, that he has the leadership that the country wants. And is it fair to say Hamza Youssef has some way to go as well? I mean, there is a fair amount of rumbling within the party, rumblings of unhappiness about his leadership. There is rumbling. The rumbling is, I think, small. There's no sort of immediate challenge on the horizon. But what he needs to do, I think, coming back in government in January is you know, really set an agenda, really focus on what he can deliver. Um, I think they need to probably look at making some some changes, maybe a small reshuffle, mm. things that sort of put the SNP back on the front foot, which it very much hasn't been for the last nine months. Do you get a sense of direction of travel? I mean, you know, there's that old line of Callaghan's, isn't it? There, you know, there's a time in politics, a time and tide. Do you, do you get the feeling that the SNP now has a pretty terrific fight on its hands? It does. It most definitely does. This is probably the hardest year the party's been faced for, you know, maybe since 2005, um, 2004, 2005. It needs to get back on the front foot really quickly. It needs to switch the narrative in Scotland from one of Labour gaining to one of the SNP fighting back and being seen to credibly fight back. At the moment, it still seems pushed by 
you know, swayed by issues, whether they come from Westminster, whether they're coming from the party internally, whether it's about trying to balance the books. It's very much struggling to get its own message across. And it has an opportunity. There is time ahead of an election to do that, but it needs to do it really quickly. Edinburgh MP Joanna Cherry commented on social media after Liz Lloyd's interview and she adopted the style of Clement Attlee. She suggests to Liz Lloyd that a period of silence on her part would be welcomed by the party. The former Health, Justice and Transport Secretary took over as First Minister from Nicola Sturgeon after she resigned in February last year. Hamza Yousaf got locked into a tough leadership battle with Kate Forbes and Ash Regan, but he emerged the victor and joins me to look back over the past year. I suggested his time has been eventful. Always a pleasure, always a pleasure, uh, Charles. And to call it an eventful year, I think, would be the understatement of the century. Certainly has been. I, I mean, I think it's a difficult enough job to take on, but there have been events upon events upon events that uh, some may kindly or unkindly say may have distracted you from the day job. Did you feel distracted as you went into this new position? Look, I think being First Minister uh, is a job that, uh, because you are the leader of the country, means that every single day there is issues that you've got to try to deal with. There are sometimes... Um, issues you've got to react to that are out with your control, and they're always the hard ones uh, that, that, that you don't have control over. And then there's the focus on that which you are in control of, and that's the job of government in particular. You know, we are in control of how we choose to spend our money, what policies we choose to bring forward. And that which is out with our control, we've got to do our best to make sure we don't get distracted by it. And that's been uh, part of my ethos to say to the team, focus on that which we are in control of, and the rest sorts itself out. So that's been the, the general kind of uh, ethos of the last kind of nine months is, is get on with that, which we do have control over. Uh, and let's ensure that we get back to um, a, a strong focus on, 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 on delivery. But there is a turning point, isn't there? And I think you've reached that, gone beyond it, if I may say, First Minister, where you now look as if you have I been there. In the beginning of the job, naturally, there's an interest in, you know, here's the new guy, it's quite novel, being the new First Minister. People want to know who you are, who your cabinet is, who your Deputy First Minister is. But you very quickly get into a position of trying to put your own stamp and own authority on the on, on the role as First Minister. And various milestones help with that. Launch of my prospectus, the programme for government, of course, this week, the budget. And um, again, I think that absolutely gives people a sense of who you are and what your values are. And the budget is a, just a classic example of that. I mean, that is a demonstration of what our values are. Not everybody will agree with, uh, you know, the, the progressive taxation that we brought forward and raising tax for those who are in the top 5%. But that's our values. We believe that we should do that in order to invest significant uh, amounts of money in our public services and make sure they get a real terms increase as opposed to a real terms cut. So um, I, I genuinely think that there's a huge opportunity now for the government and for me as First Minister to really show people what we, who we are, what we stand for and what our values are. Looking at the budget in particular, uh, we heard what happened uh, with opposition leaders in the 
uh, session of questions to you today. COSLA, the umbrella body for local government, has come out saying that it's just not going to work, that uh, what has come forward is not the final settlement that's going to give a, a full council tax freeze and enable services to continue. I think you would have expected that kind of response, did you? I don't think I've ever, in the history of devolution, uh, seen a budget take place in COSLA to say that's enough money. Uh, thanks very much. Um, so look, th that is the nature of, of um, the budget process. And of course, it's still got a way to go in terms of the process. I had a very good meeting uh, straight after the budget, actually, with the president of COSLA. And uh, she, of course, raised some levels of concern, uh, some areas where she thought the budget was very positive. So we'll keep working with COSLA. But remember, what we are offering COSLA here in, uh, is, is a significant uplift uh, in funding. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, I think it's around about a 6% uh, increase to their, to their funding. But also what we're doing is a number of areas that were previously ring-fenced were baselining into the general grant. So giving them more flexibility, so more money, more flexibility in how to spend that money. Um, and when it comes to council tax fees, giving them an above inflation, kind of inflation busting, 5% in order to cover it. I mean, I could have just given them inflation and said, look, we know where inflation is at the moment. We're, we know where it's forecast to be. And, you know, I don't suspect any of you will seek to raise council tax above inflation. Why would you in a cost of living crisis? But we'll give you above inflation. So the, it's a really good settlement for local, local government. But there's a process to go and there's a vote to go. Uh, obviously, in, uh, next year. So we'll continue our dialogue with with COSLA on these matters. This is the start of the budget process. I'd like to turn to highs and lows, First Minister. Um, I think you possibly have many to choose from. It's a typical journalist question. What's been the best part of the job so far, and what's been the worst? So, you know, when I was um, I was speaking to the former First Minister um, during the midst of the election contest. I remember Nicholas said to me at one point, look, if you do get the job, um, the best thing is every day you get the opportunity to make someone's day. And it can be something really small, like taking a picture or writing them a note, or it can be something really transformative, like a policy proposition that you bring forward that's really changing people's lives. But every day in this role, you get the chance to make somebody's day. And that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So the best part of the job, you know, being First Minister, of course, and, and representing my country, uh, you know, the only country I, I call home and the country I love, to me is a huge honour. But the highs are every single day I get the opportunity to make somebody's day. Um, but, you know, I, I also take great pride, not just in being First Minister in Scotland domestically, but representing my country in the world stage, you know, being able to represent Scotland at COP or Climate Week or, you know, in international engagements, uh, to me, uh, being able to do that on behalf of the country, it's a huge, huge honour. And below, what has been that point where you've thought, is this actually worth it? So I've never had that, I have to say, that moment genuinely. I never had a moment where I thought, is this worth it? Because it, it is absolutely worth it. I mean, there's real difficult moments. Look, in terms of lows, I think it was a real hard one for us, and I can't go into the detail of it. Obviously, but the police investigation was clearly a really difficult moment for the party um, and really difficult in terms of the trust that people have in us as a political party um, and, and knowing the people involved as well uh, as, as, as you know, for as long as I have uh, has, been, has been difficult. There's no pretending otherwise. I think I'd be 
fooling your your your, your listeners um, if they if, if I said anything like that. So that's been that was a particularly challenging moment when 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 the police investigation broke. But again, that's out with my control. It's something we've just got to let it let it play its course, and I've got to focus on uh, what uh, what I'm in control of. There was an area and a time where you were not in control and something that was immensely private to you, you brought into the public um, domain. And that was when your family uh, was trapped in Gaza. A huge uh, troubling time for you. How did you feel about making that such a, a public knowledge? Yeah, I mean, uh, from a personal perspective, I don't think there's been a lower moment. I mean, we were talking previously about you know professional lows, but as a from a per- personal perspective, I have to say the four weeks that my in-laws were in Gaza are probably been amongst the most difficult four weeks um, of my life, let alone Nadia's life, let alone their lives. And and, and it was difficult. There was no way we were never not going to be able to make that public. Um, you know, we we didn't talk about it for a few days, given the real concern that we had about getting the family out, and if we were to speak about it any repercussions of what I said um, being felt by the family in Gaza. And of course, Nadia continues to have family there. Her brother's still there. Her grand's still there. Her nieces and nephews are still there. Her cousin's still there. Um, You know, it it was extremely difficult, both trying to be a supportive husband, trying to be a really supportive son-in-law, doing my best to see if I could get my in-laws out. And at the same time, being the first minister who's got a responsibility to a whole country who's really feeling uh, grief over what was happening, not just in Gaza, but of course what had happened in Israel on the 7th of October. And and and, and not just from the Jewish community, but they particularly felt it, but of course from communities that felt uh, the grief of that entire situation. So trying to also show moral leadership uh, at that point, um, yeah, all all of that pressure on on my shoulders, and amongst the time when it was my first party conference and um, other sorts of things, uh, yeah, it was a tricky, tricky period. And now they're home, and now they're safe, and are they well? So they're home, they're safe, but they're really traumatized. I mean, I think it's hard for me to describe just how traumatic that four weeks was for them, from a mother-in-law in particular. So if you imagine from their perspective, they've seen the horrors of war. They've seen bodies blown apart. They've seen children killed. They've seen the elderly killed. They've seen hospitals targeted. They've seen refugee camps blown to pieces. So they've seen all that. They've witnessed it, not not somewhat distant from it uh, or a news report, but they've seen it with their own eyes. And they come back here and they cannot understand how the world has not put a stop to it. They just cannot, they, they can't comprehend it. And they're obviously speaking to the family every day. Uh, my brother-in-law, uh, as, you, as, you, as you probably know, is a doctor in one of the hospitals in Gaza, um, sees indescribable scenes of uh, horror every day. So they are home, they are safe. And that's the most important thing. But they are severely traumatised. And I don't think they'll be able to get over that trauma particularly easy, easily. I think um, in my lifetime anyway, I've never seen this level of death or destruction. And the word ceasefire being um, really a controversial word. Mm. Phenomenal. 
you think about it, never in my time have the calling of stopping and ceasing hostilities with over 7,000 children dead. Has that ever been a, a difficult call to make? But for some, it continues, including, I'm afraid, the UK government, including, of course, the leader of the opposition, and including also, of course, the United States. And I think those positions um, I can't comprehend, nor, frankly, could I justify. Politics change, but never stop. It affects everything we do. I'm Charles Fletcher with The Week in Hollywood. Join me here for coverage of the Scottish, UK and European parliaments. It's a crucial election year where you once again have a choice. Who's in, who's out, the ups, the downs. Join me, Charles Fletcher, bringing Holyrood home. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher and still to come in this special edition. Archive FMQs from a rowdy chamber in Edinburgh and Private Eye editor Ian Hislop on the year ahead. So to that rowdiness then, just in case you're really missing your menu of questions to the First Minister, and and who isn't, we dip into the archive for an excerpt from the last session of last year. In a moment, an asawa for Labour. But first, here's Conservative leader Douglas Ross. Can I ask the First Minister that in this week of the SNP's budget, which has led to everyone in Scotland who earns more than £28,850 paying more tax than workers south of the border, in total 1.5 million Scots paying more than people doing the exact same job elsewhere in the UK, does Hamza Youssef think it's fair that a majority of Scots will pay more tax than people south of the border who earn the same wage. First Minister. Let me say, in relation to the issues around uh, the budget, uh, first and foremost, let's make it absolutely abundantly clear that the majority of those in Scotland will pay less tax compared to those in the rest of the United Kingdom. No ifs, no buts, no maybes about it. And this budget at its very heart, is about values. The Conservative Party, in their autumn statement, chose to give give those uh, like Douglas Ross on higher salaries a tax cut of £754. In contrast, we are asking the top 5% of highest earners, like Douglas Ross, to pay a little more in tax. And by doing so, we're able to give our NHS over £500 million of an uplift, a real terms increase to our NHS, where, of course, the Conservative Party have cut funding for NHS in England. So, yes, we will prioritise an uplift to the NHS. We'll prioritise an uplift to education. We'll prioritise an uplift to police and to fire. And, of course, it is the Conservatives who prioritise a tax cut to the wealthiest, like Douglas Ross. Those are not values that I believe in. They're not the values Thank that you. I believe Scotland believes in either. Douglas Ross. <clears throat> of 
course, at its heart, this was a budget from the SNP which was about Scots paying more and getting less. That's what's going to happen uh, as a result of this budget. And these SNP tax hikes on Scottish workers will damage our economy and risks forcing highly skilled, valuable workers out of Scotland. Ian Kennedy, well, the First Minister is saying not true. He's repeating it. He's saying not true. So let's read to the First Minister what Ian Kennedy, the chairman of the British Medical Association Scotland, said. His quote is, one of the unintended consequences of this measure may push more of these doctors out of the NHS to jobs elsewhere or retirement or force them to cut overtime. We could lose those nurses, doctors and specialist NHS staff for good. Does Hamza Yusuf accept his tax rises could force key workers out of Scotland's NHS? First Minister. Presiding officer, it is awfully brave, and that is one word for it, for Douglas Ross to talk about the NHS in the week that there's junior doctor strikes happening in NHS England, but not happening in the NHS in Scotland. Not only that, of course, we've made sure through the choices we've made in this budget, there's a real terms increase to NHS spending in Scotland, and there's a real terms cut to the NHS in England because of the choices the Conservatives have made. And Douglas Ross, every time we ensure that we have progressive taxation in Scotland, he stands up and suggests that there will be some kind of mass exodus from Scotland. Well, the statistics simply don't bear that out. The national records of Scotland, statistics from 2021, show that 56,000 people came to Scotland from the rest of the UK, UK a net in-migration of almost 10,000 people. And why are they coming here, presiding uh, officer? They're coming here because when they are here in Scotland, they get free university education. They're coming here because if they, get, they get free childcare, free school meals, because they get free nursing and personal care. Those are the choices that we are making. And you know what else they get? We have the best paid nurses here in Scotland anywhere else compared to anywhere else in the UK. No, Thank wonder, you, First no wonder we haven't lost a single day to strike action in the NHS here in Scotland, Thank presiding you. officer. Douglas Ross. I was simply quoting the chairman of the BME in Scotland and we get a rant from the First Minister. Let's be, let's be very clear. The UK Government is providing the highest ever level of funding to the Scottish Government. Now, tight budgets are purely the SNP's fault for wasting taxpayers' money. Well, they laugh. It would be funny if it wasn't so serious. The wastage from this SNP government Members, on let's hear Mr. That Ross. Don't on doomed court cases, on Ivy League degrees for water executives before we even start on the bar bill. And as a consequence of SNP decisions, shops, pubs and hotels here in Scotland won't get the same rates relief as businesses in England and Wales. The Deputy First Minister is trying to shout down my question um, Mr. about Ross, hospitality. Mr Ross, I would be very grateful if all members could resist the temptation to contribute while they've not been called to speak. And I would say too that I think um, front benches have a particular um, responsibility to lead by example. But of course each and every member of the Parliament has a role to play in that good behaviour. Mr Ross. Yeah, I'm 
difficult to see the, the smug smirk from Michael Matheson and others on the front bench is really disappointing. Because what I'm, what I'm speaking about is, as a consequence of SNP decisions this week, shops, pubs and hotels here in Scotland won't get the same rates relief as businesses in England and Wales. This is what the Scottish Hospitality Group said. Many Scottish hospitality businesses will struggle to survive and customers will see prices increase because of this. And the Scottish Grocers Federation said this. It beggars belief that the Scottish Government has once again failed to pass on the 75% relief for retail seen elsewhere in the UK. So, First Minister, why are the SNP putting Scottish businesses at a disadvantage? First Minister. And this is why, Presiding Officer, Douglas Ross has no credibility when it comes to economic matters whatsoever. Not only did he demand, of course, that we previously, that we previously imitate and copy Tory tax cuts, which would have meant we'd have £1.5 billion less to spend on vital public services. He demands we spend every single penny of UK government consequentials on business relief and tax cuts. If we had done that, we would have seen real-term cuts to the NHS, real-term cuts to education, real-term cuts to the police service, real-term cuts to the fire service. We simply won't choose to do that. And if we had spent the paltry £10.8 million that the UK government in their autumn statement gave to health consequentials, that would have funded five hours of NHS Scotland activity. We make different choices here in Scotland, presiding officer. Why? Because our policies mean that, yes, while we ask the top 5% to pay a little more in tax, they get more for it. And what we simply won't do is copy Tory tax cuts for the wealthy at the expense of our public services. Uh, last week, we heard uh, a bold claim from an SNP Cabinet Secretary that world leaders were lining up to get advice uh, from this SNP Government. Now, it, it got me wondering, who, who is this that's been calling for the advice? Has Justin Trudeau been on the phone looking for a camper van? Maybe it's uh, Emmanuel Macron calling the Health Secretary to hear how to stream the Celtic match uh, from Morocco. Maybe, maybe it's Joe Biden asking for advice how to Members. deal with a disastrous predecessor at the heart of a criminal investigation. I, I don't know. It could have been any of those things. Of course, it would not have been asking the Nats how to build ferries or how to run an education system. And they definitely won't have been asking Hamza Youssef for economic advice, because he's making hard-working Scots pick up the bill for his mistakes. He's putting Scottish businesses at a competitive disadvantage. He's driving key NHS staff away, and his decisions mean 1.5 million Scots will pay more than people south of the border. Really, First Minister, is this all Scotland can expect from high-tax Hamza? Yeah. Mr Ross, I... Mr Ross, it, no, First Minister, sorry, it is very important that members address one another courteously, and that is using first names and surnames and avoiding other such names. First Minister. See, this is the difference between us, Presiding Officer, that Douglas Ross is standing here advocating for himself 
as one of the 5% top highest earners in the country to get £754 extra in a tax cut from his Conservative colleagues. The difference is that I'm advocating to make sure that we get a real terms increase to our NHS. That's the difference between us, presiding officer. I believe in an increase to our NHS, an increase to our education budget, an increase to police officers, an increase to fire service as well. And what do you get for our progressive taxation system here in Scotland? You get, of course, the best paid NHS staff here Mr. anywhere Ross. in the UK. You get the baby box. You get free prescriptions. You, of course, get free nursing and personal care. You get child care, uh, the most generous offer of child care anywhere in the UK. And under the Tories, you get a Brexit we didn't vote for. You get a mini budget that tanked the economy. You get a Westminster cost of living crisis that's harming millions of households across Scotland. No wonder, presiding officer, the Tories haven't won an election in Scotland in over 70 years, in almost 70 years. And under Douglas Ross's leadership, that ain't changing any time soon, presiding officer. Labour's Anas Sarwar lists what a horrid year it's been for the First Minister. Presiding officer, this year started with Hamza Youssef as Health Secretary. And throughout the year, things in our NHS have got worse, not better. Over 425,000 patients waited more than four hours at A&E this year. Almost 55,000 of them were there for over 12 hours. And at the start of the year, 767,938 people were on an NHS waiting list. Now that stands at 828,398. First Minister, why is it that everything you touch breaks? First Minister. Presenting officer, you know Anna Sarwar loses the argument when he goes for the personal attacks, which is what he does regularly uh, and uh, very often. Let me give Anna Sarwar some of the statistics, of course. In the budget that we have brought forward, which Anna Sarwar and his Labour colleagues have, of course, opposed, we are giving a record investment of over £19.5 billion to the NHS. That is a budget, of course, that is ensuring we have the best NHS paid staff compared to anywhere in the UK. It's a budget that gives, of course, a pay uplift to our care workers. As for NHS waiting lists, of course, there are challenges. The global pandemic has impacted health services in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, and indeed in England and right across the world. But we are making progress. If we look at outpatients, long waits and outpatients, I can hear the Labour bench is shouting, we're not. Well, let me give you the statistics. When it comes to outpatients, the longest waits, those two-year targets, the numbers waiting over two years for a new outpatient appointment is down 69%. Uh, when it comes to inpatients, numbers waiting longer than two years for inpatients uh, was reduced by 26%. Uh, so we'll continue to invest in our NHS. Wouldn't it be good if Labour supported a budget that is giving record investment to our NHS presiding officer? Yeah. Anna Sarwar. <laughs> presiding officer, I was, uh, I was quoting Hamza Yusuf's record, and let me quote it again. You were the transport minister when the trains were never on time. When you were justice secretary, the police were stretched to breaking point. And as health minister, we've got record high waiting times. No, I'm not quoting Jackie Bailey. I'm sure even she would struggle to be that harsh. I'm actually quoting Kate Forbes, who sat round the cabinet table with Hamza Youssef. And on Tuesday, we saw the consequences of SNP incompetence, waste and a failure to grow our economy. Affordable housing funding cut 
by 200 million in the middle of a homelessness crisis. Mental health services cut in real terms in the middle of a mental health crisis. And the fuel insecurity fund scrapped altogether in the middle of a cost of living crisis. This is the most devastating budget in the history of devolution. So why is it on his watch that Scots pay more and get less? First Minister. Actually, on, on, on my watch, of course, because of the actions that the Scottish Government has taken, it's estimated that 90,000 children will be lifted out of poverty this year in Scotland. And you know what won't help? What won't help with tackling child poverty is a two-child limit that Anna Sarwar now supports retaining. What won't help, of course, is a bedroom tax that Keir Starmer and Anna Sarwar now, of course, support retaining. And on my watch, of course, and this government's watch, we have more young people from areas of higher deprivation going to university than ever before. And yes, yes, there was challenges in the budget. I'm not going to pretend uh, otherwise. Let's look at why there's challenges. There's challenges because we've had over 13 years of Conservative austerity. Let me, let me read what the Welsh Labour Finance Secretary said. Briefly, First they Minister. Said, this is the toughest financial situation Wales has faced since the start of devolution. Our funding settlement, which comes largely from the UK Government, is not enough to reflect the extreme pressure Wales faces. So why is it that Labour and Wales have the backbone to challenge Tory austerity, but Anna Sauer and Scottish Labour don't. Anna Sauer. Presenting <laughs> officer, officer, don't worry. In, in 2024, we're getting rid of them. What we need to do is get rid of the SNP incompetence at the same time eh, as well. Because I'm surprised he didn't talk about his so-called progressive tax rise, which is going to raise £82 million. That would buy you a fifth of an SNP ferry that hasn't even sailed yet. He is simply not a serious politician. And this First Minister is so out of touch. Members! This First Minister is so out of touch. He thinks if you earn almost £29,000, you should pay more tax in Scotland than in the rest of the UK. These are not the people with the broadest shoulders, but they're being forced to pay the price for his failures in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Now, presenting officer, 2023 will be remembered as the year when the SNP were found out. They have broken the NHS, they have broken the justice system, they have broken the housing system, they have broken the public finances, they have broken the public trust, and they seem to have broken their party in the process. 2023 was a bad year for the SNP. Does Hamza Yusuf think 2024 is going to be any better? First Minister. Talking about broken, all Anna Sawa does is sound like a broken record, presiding officer. Time and time again, he comes here demanding more money for public services, but opposes every single revenue-raising power and policy that we bring to this parliament. And of course, that's the Anna Sawar of 2023. The Anna Sawar, who is touting for the Labour leadership, put out a letter demanding a 50p rate for those who earn 100,000. What happened? What happened? That was before, presiding officer, he, he mouthed. That was before. Members. So the one thing that absolutely won't change in 2024, presiding officer, is that Anna Sarwar will say one thing one day and then another thing another day because we know, presiding officer, presiding officer, we know that Anna Sarwar is not a serious politician. 
He doesn't think for himself. He waits until he gets the memo from head office. And I don't know, I don't know if Anna Sauer has sent his letter to Santa, but if not, Briefly, she should First ask Minister. for a backbone presiding officer. Because if he finds that backbone, Thank you, maybe he'll First stand Minister. up for Scotland as opposed to standing up First for Minister. That session came from Budget Week in December. One person in the chamber knows very well what it's like to prepare, present and then negotiate a budget settlement. I asked the former Finance Secretary, SNP leadership contender and member for Sky, Lochaber and Badenoch, Kate Forbes, how she felt as the budget unfolded. Well, I can assure you it was a lot more relaxed than it might otherwise have been because it, there's nothing quite like a budget The weeks running up to the budget are incredibly intense, but of course nobody can see you're working until it's finally published. And perhaps there's an inevitability to the opposition's questions, because irrespective of what's in the budget, of course there will never be enough money for everything that people want to see invested in. But by and large, what you want to try and do is to help people appreciate your priorities and what you've done and what you've been unable to do with the budget available. And in your time and under the current uh, Finance Secretary and the former and present First Ministers, you've all said, that's great, oppose, have questions, but come and tell us where you want us to take the money from because there's a finite pot. Do they actually do that? Well, it's differed from year to year. I always made a great effort in the run-up to the budgets I introduced to engage with opposition spokespeople extensively and always went in with the aim of actually trying to secure as many budget agreements as possible. Now, unfortunately, many fell at the last moment because there just wasn't enough money. But I was so proud in the last budget I did to secure two agreements with the Liberal Democrats, who'd have thought it, and the Greens, which perhaps was more expected. But I think that's how Holyrood was designed to operate in terms of that collaboration around things like the budget. But it does require a maturity and a pragmatism which is sorely lacking, I think, in Scottish politics. And the understanding that a devolved government's budget is fixed You cannot make a bigger cake. All you can do is slice up the cake that you have as fairly as possible. You talk about collaboration, yet you're very clear that you would like to see an end to the Butte House Agreement and stop collaborating between the Greens and the SNP. We're coming up to a new year. Is it time now for that new start? Well, my concern has been less to do with the collaboration which we would like to see actually across all the different parties and more to do with the substance of the Butte House Agreement. And these views will not come as a surprise to any of your listeners, I'm sure. But already some of the core aims in the Butte House Agreement have had to be changed or ditched for good reason, like banning fishing in 10% of Scottish waters as part of the highly protected marine area. So my argument is that any government, any party, should constantly update its offering to the people and its policies 
to reflect the current needs and priorities, and I think people's needs and priorities around the extreme pressures caused by the cost of living, and that should be first and foremost, and perhaps the Butte House Agreement should be revised and reviewed to reflect that. So dump the Greens? Well, probably in my uh, leadership contest, um, that might have been a a fair uh, summary, but... Just in case anyone's forgotten, that was a contest I lost. (laughs) So I think that the current First Minister won fair and square, and it's his prerogative. And, of course, he is very committed to the cooperation agreement. And uh, as a backbencher who's very supportive of uh, the current uh, government and the current leadership... um, you know, I my job is to stand up for my constituents, which I continually do on the basis of the policies rather than the general arrangement. You know what horrible people we are in the media tower and we find stories where there may not be stories and maybe there is a story in this. Are you gathering troops to have a leadership? <laughs> Are you hankering for the leadership and waiting for the First Minister to tumble? Uh, no, and... You know, just before the outcome of the leadership contest, I said when asked that it was highly unlikely that I would run again. And actually, I haven't changed that position. My view is that there is no uh, vacancy right now. That secondly, parties stand on fall or fall on the basis of their unity. And that at the end of the day, we are all deckhands on the ship. So our job is to ensure it's in fine shape. And that's my commitment, rather than, as some have suggested, waging a coup. The only coups I come across are the Highland variety in my constituency. Getting to your constituency can sometimes be a bit of a trauma if we are driving on the A9. What do you want to see happening with the A9? I, perhaps more than anybody else, drive uh, the A9 for more hours than I can um, count. Uh, I go up and down it at least twice a week um, and I live just off it. And just a couple of days ago, I overheard a constituent who was just about to get in the car to drive down it say... I hate the A9, and I think many of us could share that. The SNP committed to duelling the A9. It's been front and centre of every campaign that I can recall. It's been in my own election leaflets. So we will tolerate nothing less than full duelling of the A9 between Perth and Inverness. It must be done. The government has said that it will commit to completing it and so the question is that it is a que- the question is around the timetable and the funding to do that as quickly as possible because it cannot come too soon and this goes back to baking a cake you've only got so many ingredients there are only so many ways the money can be spent is the a9 really so important it's essential it dueling it truly reflects the national nature of the SNP. If the SNP is truly representative of all of Scotland, there can surely be nothing more important than duelling Scotland's backbone. And that is the A9, connecting, essentially, Stirling with the furthest reaches 
of the Scottish mainland. Now, I'm a big advocate for other roads too, not least the A82, because that is equally important. But for now, I think the commitment has been made on the A9 and it must be delivered. How important is religion in public life? Well, the question should be, how important is it to Scotland's people? Because Scotland's public life should reflect our citizens. And despite the fact that I think Scotland is far less religious than it perhaps used to be, it's still important. And in a representative democracy, I think that all minorities should have a voice, including those of faith. Kate Forbes. Before we go, time for a spot of Mystic Meg. The media tower is full of speculation about what's going to come our way in 2024. I'm sticking to my prediction of a May general election. There's a growing consensus supporting that, although some still think Rishi Sunak will go later, perhaps in October. The editor of Private Eye, Ian Hislop, also goes with May. He teases my colleague at Times Radio, Matt Chorley, about other aspects of the year ahead. I feel Trump might get in again, um, which is is top depressing um, uh, revelation, just because uh, uh, life is so crazy at the moment, based on the last few years, that why wouldn't he? Uh, So, I mean, I think that may be the top election. I do think um, we will have an election in Britain. I think Keir Starmer will get in, and I think he'll recall David Cameron uh, to be his deputy <laughs> prime minister uh, in an attempt to keep everybody on side. Um, yeah. And then I think that'll probably go very well and then there'll be no further political stories for the rest of the year. And that's The Week in Hollywood from Caledonia Media. I'm Charles Fletcher. We're back to Old Clays and Cold Porridge next week as members return to Hollywood and Westminster and we'll begin what should be one of the most exciting years in politics. And if you didn't ken it was going to be an exciting year, you can now. Aikiva. Wales.